Sandy and I, Sandy and I were both on Lake Berryessa, both on inner tubes right next to each other. And uh, we hadn't d- ever done that together as a couple, do, uh, you know, kind of water sports. I, I was not extreme sports, whatever. Some of you thought I was skiing and doing flips. I was just on an inner tube, right? And it just happened, you know, there, there was a rope behind me. And the part that you hold on to when you're skiing, right, that was behind me. And, and as the boat took off and that came through, it went like a perfect Plinko game at, at the fair. It went right through my leg. So I was expecting to go forward holding onto the inner tube. Instead, what happened is I turned backwards, right? And I started to be dragged by this rope, right? So I had three thoughts. Thought number one was this. I don't think this is what they meant when they said this was going to be fun and exciting. (laughs) I've never done it before, but I'm pretty sure this is not the fun and exciting part, right? The second thing, as bubbles and water is all around me and going into my mouth, I'm trying to figure out what the heck is going on, right? And my third thought is, how do I get out of it as quickly as possible, right? So anyway, it, it happens. It's, it, you know, it's, it's nobody's fault. It's just what happened. And my buddy pulled me out of the water. And fast forward, I get to Kaiser Richmond eventually. And three doctors see me. And they do an x-ray. And then they give me a heavy sedative. At which point in time, I know, okay, I'm not preaching on Sunday morning. <laughs> so, I mean, I could. But I don't know. It would be a little crazy sermon filled with the spirit, if you know what I mean. And... Uh, so I called Dave Sauer, man. I heard he killed it. I heard he stepped in, give, bring, the, bring the righty out of the bullpen. And so the, the doctor says, we're taking you to Oakland in an ambulance. We're concerned that your foot has what's called, I think they called it compartment injury or something like that. And if you have that, it's serious and you probably have sur- need surgery right away. And so, okay, so off, off we go, right? And uh, thank goodness I don't have that. Um, the MRI came back this week. There's no ligament damage. There's no tendon damage. I have a, um, a severe um, um, tear of my calf muscle. And so, I mean, the good news is Norco. I know. I popped one right back there before I came up on stage. You want to know the best thing about being on Norco, right? The best thing about being on Norco is that now when I say something stupid, I just blame the Norco. I am milking this. I am kidding. I, I kid, I, I'm not really taking much of it at all. I think maybe I've taken one or two, one at night to make sure I could sleep through the night. I tried not to do that, but um, uh, I, me- I met with the specialist. He said uh, six weeks recovery to six months recovery, somewhere in there. I didn't like that gap. Um, but you know what? For the first time ever, he asked, and I requested a doctor's note. <laughs> you ever go to Kaiser? They go, do you need a doctor's note to give to your boss? And I'm like, no, I am the boss. That's fine. This time I'm like, give me a doctor's note. I photocopied it. There's 200 in the back, one for each one of you on your way out. And uh, here's what it said. No weight bearing on the leg. I still have not been able to put any weight on it. So you want to know the big ministry discussion at Bay Hills this week? This is what our staff did. How do we get Dave on stage? That was it. Do we do a wheelchair ramp? Do we do a, 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 a reclining chair? Do, what do we do, Right. My thought, my idea, you guys remember watching the movies when, do you remember how they used to car- carry the pharaoh? <laughs> Bare-chested guys with loincloths, you know, right down the middle, you know. I think that was the Norco speaking, but anyway, uh, um, that's, that's kind of what happened. Um, okay, let's get serious just for a quick second before we jump into our new series. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, he says, don't lose heart. While outwardly you are wasting away, inwardly 
you can and will be renewed day by day or continuously. So here's what it means. Listen carefully. Some point in time for you, it's either going to be your leg or your knee or your hip or your back or your eyes or your brain or it's going to be cancer or it's going to be pneumonia or it's going to be Alzheimer's. It's going to be something because outwardly you are wasting away. You and I live in a broken, sinful world, which means our bodies break down, right? And they break down. Here's what I need you to do. I need you to turn to the person next to you and say, you are not Iron Man. Go ahead and do that. You are not Iron Man. Now, now I need you to turn to your second option because I saw all of you turn to one person. And I need you to say to the other person, say, but don't lose hope. Go ahead and do that right now. Don't lose hope. Because here's what Paul says. Outwardly, we are breaking down. Outwardly, we have calf injuries and we have illnesses, right? Some point in time, a month from now, six months from now, a year from now, you'll be walking around in crutches. That's not me being negative. It's me being realistic, right? But when that happens to you, don't forget whatever it is. Because some of us came in today with different issues than mine, but we came in with something, right? Outwardly, you might be wasting away. Outwardly, you're getting worse. But inwardly, through Jesus Christ, you can get better. Yeah. See, now that, that's worth an amen right there. I'm not preaching my heart out here. That's, you guys need a Norco, right? <laughs> okay, let's, uh, how about we forget the leg and we get to the business of talking about how to make our spirits better, how to grow spiritually. I am so excited about this series. It's based upon the life of Elisha. If you grab your study guides, I want to encourage you to follow along. You see it on the screen. It is called Dream Bigger. And start smaller. And what we're going to be doing is we're going to be looking at a couple verses in 1 Kings 19. I want to encourage you to turn in your phones and your Bibles. You'll see we'll put it on the screen for you. But it's always good for you to look it up and follow along because I won't be bringing all of it back up during the series. But it's, the, it's this basic idea that, listen, if you want to accomplish something great in life, I don't care if it's financially and in the business world, I don't care if it's academically, I don't care if it's athletically, I don't care if it's, if it's spiritually, if you want to accomplish something great in the world, more likely than not, it always starts with small decisions you made years ago, small routines you started years ago. And what we're going to see in the life of Elisha is just that, a man who became great, but you see over and over again in his stories, small decisions he makes, small steps that he takes. Small choices that turned him into the great man that he became. First Kings chapter 19 is where we're going to be, verses 19 through 21. I'm going to read them, and then we're going to jump in. So Elijah went from there, and he found Elisha, son of Shaphat. He was plowing with the 12 yoke of oxen, and he himself was driving the 12th pair. Elijah went up to him, and he threw his cloak around him. Elisha then left his, clo- his oxen and ran after Elijah. Let, let me kiss my father and, and, my, and say, say goodbye to my mother, he said, and then I'll come with you. I'm with you. Go back, Elijah replied. What, what have I done for you? In other words, you don't owe me anything. Verse 21, so Elisha left him and went back. He took his yoke of oxen and slaughtered them. He burned the plowing equipment to cook the meat, to cook the meat and gave it to the people and they ate. When he set out to follow, and then he set out to follow Elijah and he became his servant. You know what's interesting? I don't know if you know this. Did you realize that other than Jesus, other than Jesus, nobody performed more miracles in the Bible than Elisha? Isn't that interesting? 
He's not one of the superstar people in the Bible that we think of. But this guy performed more miracles that we know of than anyone else other than Jesus. But again, theologians and Bible scholars will say he, 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 there's no way he could have got to that point if not for the stories like we see in Kings chapter 19, it, it, other than the, the small decisions and the st- small steps he makes. So what I'm going to do, and you can follow along on your study guide, or at, if you write it down or not, I don't care. What I care is you look for and listen for the one thing you're going to do, the one reason God brought you here to, lead, to, to hear this message. Five steps, five decisions, five choices God is asking us to make that are rather small. For some of us, they may be medium, But regardless of what they are, they put you in a position so somewhere down the road, you're great at whatever it is you're trying to pull off. I'm obviously hoping that's spiritually. Principle number one, here's what God wants you to do. God wants us to serve faithfully even if and even when it's monotonous and it's boring and it's off-putting and it's nasty. Don't miss what, what his job is. Elisha is a farmer. But he's not a farmer picking grapes. He's not a farmer, you know, getting the wheat down. No, he's, he's a farmer. His job is to plow the field. At the end of his eight hours of work, back-breaking work, he's, got, he's dust covered and he's got dust in every orifice of his face and he's got to take this monster shower to get clean. Every single day, it's the same thing. Every day. And, and, it, and it becomes monotonous. And it becomes tiresome, and it becomes boring, and yes, it even becomes off-putting and nasty. You go, what do you mean off-putting and nasty? Well, see, the problem is many of us, we've never been farmers. Many, some of us haven't even been on a farm before. I want you to imagine Elisha, the, the, the farmer who plows with oxen. And I want to ask some questions now. What is he smelling all day long? <laughs> what is he stepping in all day long? What is he seeing all day long? Let, let me show you what he's seeing. Let's put it on the screens. This is what he's seeing. There it is right there. That's his view. On Monday morning, uh, the in-flight entertainment, oxen rears, right? He opens his laptop on Tuesday morning. You want to know what his homepage is? www.oxenrears. On Wednesday morning, you want to know what he posts on Instagram? Another image of an oxen rear. There it is. That is his life. Question, do you ever feel that that represents your life? And by that I mean more boring, monotonous, off-putting. For some of you, it literally, we've already talked about this, it could be an illness. Every day it hurts. Every day. Or it's someone close to you that has an illness. Every day the same care that you are glad to give, but can we just be honest for a moment, it's tough. For some of you, some of the students that I see here tonight, it's school. There's always an assignment. There's always a paper. There's always a test. There's always a quiz that's coming up. You're not really into school. You know you need to do it. You need to get some minimums, but it's not fun. For some of you, it's your career and your job. Some of you have coworkers, and some of you have a boss that are just like, well, I'm not going to say it, but you know what I mean. <laughs> Here's my challenge to you. You want to fast forward the tape of your life and look ahead and know that God has turned you into the kind of person that he wants you to be when you're doing something that's boring 
and monotonous. And even if it's off-putting, be faithful anyways. You know, when you, when you talk to people that are successful in any area of life, talk to them, whether it's the business world or the medical world or educational, anywhere, any part, they will tell you an oxen rear story. Because we see them as successful, but before they became successful, they had something somewhere in their life that was what you see on the screen. Be faithful even when life is difficult, even when life is hard. Principle number two is pursue ministry or kingdom advancement despite the cost, because it's going to be costly. I want you to notice, it's this very small phrase, but it says that Elisha had 12 yoke of oxen. So again, we're not farmers, but I've broken it down for you on the screen. 12 yoke equals 24 oxen. And 24 oxen in those days meant that Elisha was very well off. He had a wonderful home. He had more cars that he owned than people that had licenses in his house. He had a house in Tahoe for the summer. He was doing really well off. Really well off. And yet he gives it all up to follow God's call on his life. A couple days ago, I opened my laptop and, you know, I, I don't know what, I think it's MSBC or whatever news thing comes up. And there was an article story in the Wall Street Journal about a guy called Steve Jabby. So Steve Jabby, let's put it on the screen. Steve Jabby, uh, if, if you're an NBA fan, you'll recognize his face. Because for the longest time, Steve Jabby was considered to be the best basketball referee in the entire world. He, he refed all the NBA finals, all of them. And when he was at the peak of his career, guess what he did? He gave it all up and he went to seminary. He gave up the power. He gave up the money. He gave up the excitement of being involved in his favorite sport. He couldn't jump high enough to dunk the ball, but he figured out a way to get on that court as a referee. He gave up hobnobbing with LeBron James and Steph Curry and all the great superstar basketball players to go to seminary. Now, let me just be clear. God is not necessarily calling you to go to seminary or be a missionary or be a pastor or be a prophet like Elisha. Now, he is to some of you, and you've continued to ignore it. But for the most part, you know what he's asking of all of us? He may be asking you to do the very same thing you're already doing, but you got to put on a new pair of glasses and you have to do it with a new purpose, a new perspective. And here's your purpose. Your purpose is to pursue ministry and kingdom advancement. You work where you work, not to earn an income. You work where you work because God is trying to transform that business, that company, that neighborhood, that school. That's why you work where you work. Change your perspective. Jesus said it this way in Matthew 16. If you want to be a Christian, if you want to be born again, if you want to be one of my followers, if you want to be a disciple of mine, he said this, take up your cross daily and follow me. Now, we, we don't have a clue what that means because we don't live in a day and age where there's crucifixions. We've heard about it in church, but that was code for, and everybody listening understood Jesus was saying, listen, if you want to be a Christian, it's going to cost you. It's going to cost you. If you haven't figured out your junior high or senior high, um, and you um, admit openly that you're a follower of Jesus Christ, it will cost you popularity. 
there's a good chance you may not be in the in crowd because it's not cool to be a Christian. If you're in the business world or you're in sales or anything like that, it may cost you uh, an advancement or a promotion or, or a raise because you're standing for what is right and, and not just doing a business deal because it's going to make money. In some of our families, it, it, will, it will cost you peace because there will be conflict in your home and in your extended family as people argue with you about who Jesus is and why he matters. It'll cost you, in some cases, financially. It is costing brothers and sisters of Christ, in Christ around the world of ours. It's costing them physically. It is literally costing them their lives. Book of Revelation tells us in the end days, it'll cost many Christians their lives throughout the world. But the point that, that we read throughout Scripture is to be a follower of Jesus Christ always involves a cost. Always. I might add, if it's not costing you something to follow Jesus, you might reevaluate if you're actually following the Jesus of the Bible. I have a drink after that. That was good. <laughs> a little drink of vodka real quick. It does water. This is a big deal, guys. I'm not saying you've got to throw yourself under the bus, but it's always costly to follow Jesus. Always. Some way, somehow. Principle number three, obey immediately and even passionately, even if you don't fully understand. So Elijah is the prophet in the land. In those days, they didn't speak, uh, God didn't speak through priests or prophets and, uh, or, or, or pastors. He spoke through prophets. And Elijah is the main man. He, he, is, he is prophesying and speaking on behalf of God. And God has a conversation with Elijah just before our story, and he says, okay, man, you're getting a little older. You've got to get ready for retirement. You've got to get a succession plan. I want, I've identified someone that I want you to mentor so he could take over for you when you're gone. That's Elisha. So Elijah, I know sometimes we get messed up with those names. Elijah travels a significant distance to find this farmer, Elisha. And he finds them. And what's interesting in the story is we see no conversation. You have to assume that there's some conversation, but we don't see any in, in, in the Bible. And, and, and at some point in time, Elijah takes his cloak and he puts it around the shoulders of Elisha. Now, again, we don't understand what that means. But in those days, that was code. That was the official act of identifying Elisha as the successor. Elijah is the president. Elisha is the vice president. When something happens to me, you're in charge. You take over. Now, from what we can tell, uh, Elijah, uh, and he was quite a character if you, if, you look, if you study him. Elijah, after doing that, he just walks off. We know that because eventually, eventually Elisha has to run after him. You have to assume, you know, he, he's given this cloak, and then Elisha's got to tie up the oxen. Then he's got to get his other workers because he's got 11 other plows that are going. Why don't you guys keep going? I'm going to go talk to him. And, and then notice the urgency of wanting to follow and do what God wants him to do. He runs after him. He runs after God's calling. And he catches up with Elijah, and he says, okay, I get what you're asking me. But um, here's what we're going to, and I'm in. I'm in. But what I want to do is I, I need to go back, and I need to talk to my mom and dad. And, uh, you know, they're kind of elderly. And what you're asking me, if I understand it correctly, um, I might be gone for a long time. I don't know where I'm going. I don't know how long it's going to take me, but I can read between the lines. My mom and dad, they're a little bit older, 
and my gut tells me that if I go with you, there's a chance that one or both of them are gone by the time I get back. So let me go say bye to them. And then I'm in. And so that's what he does. He goes back and he, and he finds his family and, and he says goodbye to them. There's urgency and then there's uncertainty in the call of God. I want you to go that way, but I, I'm not sure exactly what that way is. Go anyway. Go anyway and trust me. You know, when you look at the marketing of cars, they, they've done all these studies on, on why you and I buy certain cars. And they, what they've determined is that, generally speaking, the car that we buy is not based upon consumer reports. It's not based upon mileage, right, and, and how many miles we get to the gallon. It's not based upon that. You want to know, for the most part, the average American, when we buy a car, it's based upon two things. How cool does it look? And how cool does it sound? And when I say sound, I don't just mean the revving of the engine. I mean literally the name of the vehicle. So these marketers have done all these studies in terms of what do we call something that attracts people, right? That makes them think, aye, that's the kind of car. And you know what they've discovered? They've discovered that one of the best ways and best things to name a car is after an animal, now, you've got to be real careful with this because you can't call it the wrong thing. But let me just give you some examples. Let's put them on the screen. So you have the Ford Bronco, right? You have the VW Beetle. This next one, muscle car, I like this one. The Dodge Plymouth Barracuda, right? That sounds cool, doesn't it? I want one of those, right? Then you've got the Dodge Ram. And then the last one, I need to go through a midlife crisis and get one of these. This is a, a Chevrolet Stingray Corvette. Right? And there are, when you look, just Google it. There's name after name after name of cars that are given after, after animals because somehow or another that, that's attractive to us. Let me talk to you a little bit about the Chevy Impala. The Chevy Impala, produced by Chevrolet, let me show you, let's put it on the screen, um, is named after, after the African Impala. Now, the African Impala is the equivalent of the American deer but there are some significant differences between our deer and the African Impala. For one, the Impala is much, much shorter. It's only about three feet tall. It's very tiny. It's about this, this tall. It's very majestic. It's very beautiful. They're everywhere in Africa. It's like a cat and a dog in Africa, these Impalas. Another thing that's unique about an Impala is that though it's very, very short, it's fast. Of course, in its environment, it's running away from predators like lions and cheetahs and such. Also, it can jump very high. Three feet high can jump up, up to 9 to 11 feet in the air. It's quite impressive when you see them running and jumping. Now, here's what's interesting. Every once in a while, you can go to a zoo and you can see impala. But, but when a zookeeper tries to contain an impala, what's interesting is they only need to build a four-foot high wall. Well, time out. They're three feet tall. They can jump nine to 11 feet, but only a four to five feet tall wall. Why? And here's the answer. The answer is the, the African Impala will never jump if it can't see the ground or the land land on. And because it's this short, right, and the wall is this high, I'm not jumping because I can't see even though I know that I have the ability to jump over it, I can't see the ground. So I'm not moving until I know what's happening. Question, when it comes to obeying God, are you and I like the African Impala?
Oh, no. Yeah, no, I heard, I heard you loud and clear. I'm not moving until I know exactly what you want from me. I'm not moving until I know the details. I'm not moving until I have the plan. Can I tell you something about our God? He's not going to always give them to you. In fact, he's going to use the process to stretch you while not knowing the details. I want you to go that way, but exactly what does that mean? I'm not telling you, go anyway. Go anyway. Let me give you a couple verses that I, I hope will encourage you. Psalm 119, verse 32. I will quickly obey your commands. Quickly. Psalm 119, verse 60. Without delay, I hurry to obey your commands. It, 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 those of us that are parents, right, especially when the kids are younger, you, you, you instinctively know this and you try and communicate to your kids, listen, delayed obedience on your part is really a form of disobedience. Let me say that again. Delayed obedience is actually a form of disobedience. When I ask you to do something, I expect you to do it now, not 10 minutes from now, not a day from now, not a week from now. I'm asking you to do it now. And the same is true with our Heavenly Father. Delayed obedience, it's really a form of disobedience. Could I ask you a quick question before we move on to the next point? What is it that God wants you to do that you're balking at, that you're stalling at? You know, you heard it loud and clear a week ago, a month ago, a year ago, and you haven't done it. Don't be like the African Impala. You want to be great in your future? Then this is a step you got to take, but it makes me nervous. Good. It's called faith. Trust in God, not in yourself. There's a balance between rational thinking and, and faith and stepping out in faith, but, but you got to find that balance and you got to go for it, okay? Principle number four. You need to publicly declare your allegiance even if it makes you feel awkward. So this idea of slaughtering the oxen um, is, is kind of an interesting thing. He, he slaughters the oxen, he cooks them up, he has a barbecue with his friends. Now, um, slaughtering oxen in those days was rather normal. It was common. We, it's not common to us, right? But other than the folks from PETA, this was a normal, accepted thing in those days, right? It was for food, slaughtering the animals. It was for, for celebration when something good happened, right? And it was for honoring and worshiping God. You would slaughter an animal and, and offer it to God. In, in this case, it falls into the second category. It's a celebration, right? And so word gets out. Party, party at Elisha's place this weekend. Big barbecue this weekend. We're having oxen ribs, right? Huge party, right? Everyone is invited, right? BYOB, no, no, he's going to have kegs, right? He's providing everything, right? I'm there, I'm in. Why? What's the celebration? Well, I don't know. He said he's going to announce it when we get there. So the party starts, and there's streamers, and there's balloons, and there's food, and potato salad, and they got baked beans, and they got everything, right? And halfway through the party, Elisha, ding, 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 everybody quiets down. I see a bunch of my friends here tonight. Man, I'm so glad you guys come. I, there's my buddies from the, the Little League team. We all had a good time. There's my high school buddies over there. Shout out to my college buddies, right? The Farming Union guys over there. Thanks for coming. Okay, I see you guys. <laughs> right? Neighborhood families right there. Yeah? Okay, thanks for coming out to this party. We got some more ribs coming out. We're adding a little extra spice on this next batch. Make sure. Eat up. Eat up. But I, I wanted to just grab your attention for a couple seconds, and then we can get back to having a good time. I just wanted to let you know what's going on. I just wanted you to know that, uh, well, I'm, I'm closing the business down. 
And um, I've decided to, you see that guy way over there? He's a, yeah, he's kind of a strange looking guy, but his name is Elijah. And he's the prophet in the land. And I've decided to close my business and to be, uh, become his apprentice, his intern. And that's exactly what all his friends did. You could have heard a pin drop. And when it was all done, I can only imagine one of his good friends coming to him and go, dude, man, I mean, you, you, you got to do what you got to do, but man, the way you set it up and everything, I mean, make the decision, but do it on the down low. Because man, the guy looks weird. If that doesn't work out, you can come back and get your business going. Why make it so public? Because that's God's way. Here's how Jesus said it. He's talking to a group of people and they're talking about what it means to be great in the kingdom of God. And and he says this, listen, let me just make sure you understand. If, this is important, if you acknowledge me publicly here on earth, then, this is very important, then I will acknowledge you with my Father in heaven. If you acknowledge me publicly here on earth, then I will acknowledge you with my Father on earth, uh, in heaven. That's what it's all. See, the mistake that so many of us have made is this. Um, we, we understand that, listen, your decision to become a Christian and a follower of Jesus Christ is a personal decision. It's never a group decision. It's not a family decision. It's not a friend's decision. It's not a couple decision. It's a personal decision, but it was never intended to be a private decision, ever. He wants you to make it public. Now, he doesn't want you to thump people over the head everywhere you go. I know Christians like that too, and they make me gross. I kick them in the throat, <laughs> right? Just chill a little bit, but don't hide it. Could I tell you a little something, right? That was the Norkel, my bad. I wish I just said, <laughs> see how I do that? I'm milking this. Um, that's what baptism is all about. When you, when you think about baptism, there is a symbolic meaning. There is a theological meaning. You wanna, can I tell you the main reason for baptism? It's this one right here. God wants you to make your faith public. He wants you to have the courage to do publicly what you've already decided to do privately. You already decided to give your life to Christ. Now make it public. Now some of you, we, we missed the boat. Ah, I probably should have done it when I was in high school. Ah, I should have done it at youth camp. Ah, I should have done it right after I got saved. And, and then we just, we kept skipping and then we felt awkward. And here we are years later. Still haven't been baptized. Can I ask you a question? It's going to make you feel awkward. What are you going to say to Jesus when he asks you why you didn't? I'm not saying it's one of the top 10 things you should do in the Bible. It's not the 10 commandments, but it's in there. What are you going to say to him? This is not me trying to guilt you. This is me as your pastor trying to encourage you, man up. It's a big deal. Every once in a while, I'll talk to someone who's getting baptized and they go, oh, I am so nervous. I'm just not, I'm not a person on stage. Good, that's exactly what it's about. I'm not going to make you give a speech, right? That's why we do the little videos and, right? Dave Sauer does our baptisms. Do you believe in Jesus as your personal savior? And if you're giving your life to him, he puts the mic in your mouth and all you got to say is one word. Yes. And that's it. And then depending how old you are, we hold you down in the water as long as possible. (laughs) Here's my point, whether it's baptism or whether it's at school 
or whether it's in your family or whether it's at work, make your, pu- your faith public. Don't, don't hide it. Declare your allegiance to Jesus Christ. The fifth principle, and I'm going to wrap it up with this, is commit fully to Jesus. Be sold out to him even if or especially if it's risky. So let me, let me say this. This is, I can sort of understand the Oxen Burgers barbecue. I may have not done, I maybe let's slaughter two of them. But he does all 12. Okay, whatever. I could sort of understand that. What I can understand is why he burns his farming equipment. Because that, that seems irresponsible, over the top, and short-sighted. Oh, what, if you heard it, what if you heard God wrong? What if, what's his name, Elijah, is a, is a quack? Well, then you can come back, get your equipment, and get your business going again. Not anymore. He just burned it. So here's, how, here's what I'm thinking. You know, you know uh, old uh, you know, Jacob over there, and he sees just a kid right out of high school. He's starting out as a farmer. Why don't you donate it to him? That, man, what a blessing that would be. Oh, they're not brand new, but he'd love it. Or why don't you take them, sell them on Craigslist, and give the proceeds to the building program? Or your dad's got that barn that he's hardly using. I mean, he's got a couple bikes in there. He's got an old pool table. But it's full. It's empty. Take the plows, put them in there, and if you ever need them, they're there. Why burn them? What are you doing? On April 21st, 1519... Spanish explorer, Hernando Cortez. If you're white, that's Hernando Cortez. <laughs> okay. He was a Spanish explorer, and, uh, and Cortez, he landed in April of 1519 in the harbor of Veracruz, Mexico. He had 600 men, and for the next two years, he was vastly outnumbered by the forces of Montezuma, but he eventually defeated him and conquered Mexico. What's interesting about Cortez is that Spain had already sent several expeditions to Mexico and failed. With just as many men and or more, they hadn't even been able to establish a uh, colony. This guy conquered the whole country with 600 men. Now, the, the reason is quite interesting. See, Cortez knew. He knew that the task ahead was difficult, and it was challenging, and it was dangerous, and the odds were against them. And he knew, he knew, because he had been a soldier that had worked his way up the ranks. He knew that at some point in time, my men will be tempted to give up. My men will be tempted to go back to España. So he came up with a solution. You've heard of it. You just don't realize it's this guy. When you look at it in your history books, here's what we see. Let's put the next image on the screen. It's referred to as burn the boats. What Cortez did is after he had taken all of his men off the ships, after he'd taken all the equipment and supplies off the ships, he gave orders to burn the 11 ships that had sailed from Spain as he and his 600 men watched on the beach. Their only escape route, burn and sink. And historians point to this event as the key to why he conquered Mexico. Because as they were watching these boats burn, they knew 
There's no plan B. There's no out. We either stay and are victorious or we stay and are defeated. There's no plan B. There's no return. There's no turning back. When I was a little boy, I learned a chorus that many of you learned. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. And one more time, because kids got to get repetitive to get memory. I have decided to follow Jesus. And the key phrase, no turning back. No turning back. Verse 1 is pretty cool. Verse 2 is cool too. The cross before me, the world behind me. No turning back. No turning back. But the key verse, the one that if you really think about it, punches you in the gut is the last one. Though none go with me, I still follow. Can I tell you something to make you feel awkward, but really test your faith? Let's play that out. Let's play that scenario out. Let's just imagine something crazy happens. And, and a month from now, no one else in this room wants to follow Jesus anymore. All of us are bailing on God, except you. What would you do? Though none will follow, though none go with me, still I will follow. No turning back. No turning back. You see, the reason Elisha burned his plows is the reason Cortez burned his ships. I want to make sure that I have no plan B. I know myself. I know when the going gets tough, I might be tempted to go back home and start up the farming business again. But but I realize that's not what God wants from me. I have chosen to follow. No turning back. No turning back. No plan B. I want to end with a question. I'll put it up on the screen for you as the band comes up. So we have in this story, Elisha kills the cows, and then he burns the plows. Here's the question I have for you. What do you symbolically need to kill and burn? What is getting in the way of your walk with Christ? What is keeping you from being as pure as he desires? What is keeping you from taking your next step closer to Jesus? What is keeping you from becoming everything God intended? What is it? What plow do you need to burn? For some of you, you need to uh, stop sleeping with your boyfriend or living with your girlfriend. You know that's the issue. For some of you, there's an issue in your life you've got to get under control. You're drinking, your anger, your words. Some of us, maybe we need to burn and forget the past. Could you finally get it through your brain that when God forgives you and gives you grace, he really means it and he forgets your past? That's what you need to do. For some of us, you need to stop listening to certain music. You need to stop reading certain books. You need to stop watching certain shows. You need to start going, stop going to certain websites. You need to stop certain friendships. 
you need to stop certain expenditures. I don't know. You figure it out. See, we here at Bay Hills talk a lot about taking your next step closer to Jesus. But one of the things you have to understand is that taking your next step closer to Jesus also includes making sure you eliminate anything that might take you away from him. I'm going to ask you one last time. What do you need to burn? What plow do you need to burn? I don't know if you caught the title. The title of today's study is called Holy Arson. Some of us need to do some burning. Things in our life that are keeping us from moving forward. By the way, and I won't have time to cover it in our series, but one of the interesting stories in the life of Elisha is that at one point in time, he asks God for a double blessing. Double blessing. And God gives it to him. But theologians point back to times and stories like this. If he hadn't done this, God would never have given him that double blessing. I don't know what it is that God has in your future, but in your future, you will have a moment and a time where you might want and need a double blessing. And what I'm trying to encourage you and help you understand is that what God does in the future might be dependent on what you do right now. Does that make sense? Don't waste the last 30 minutes of your life. Here's what I want you to do. Here's our summary slide. Why did God bring you to hear this study? What does he want you to do? To serve faithfully, to pursue ministry, to obey immediately, and to declare faith publicly, or to commit fully. What does he want you to do? What I'm going to do is, in a moment, we're going to pray, and I'm going to hobble off the stage. Don't be distracted by that. And I want you to take 30, 40 seconds and figure it out. We're going to leave this slide up on the screen so that you can peek if you need to. But these next 30 seconds are between you and God. So let's pray.